As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about a terrible case of road rage. And I'll be talking about fraud, embezzlement, and the Vatican. I'm very excited. I know. You love a good fraud case. I love it. Yeah. This... I feel like you'll enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a Kristen case for sure. Okay, great. Not so much a Brandy case. How did you even find this? Um, I stumbled on it and I was like, hmm, like the headline caught yeah. me and I was like, I feel like I could do this. All right. But before we get to that. Oh. Kristen, I'd like to welcome you back to a segment that we haven't done in a minute. Um, oh no! A segment this... of the podcast called oh, no. "Shit Brandy Fucked Up" on the last episode. <laughs> I'm so relieved it was you. Yes. Okay. I okay. love this segment. So, um, if you'll recall, on our last episode, I was very sick. You were, <laughs> and um, apparently didn't feel the need to reference my notes that often, and oh, I no. really fucked something oh, no. up. Oh <laughs> no! And it was like in my notes sure okay so i talked about the life insurance payout that sharon kinney got right you said it was thirty-eight thousand dollars yeah, if i recall joseph it was thirty-eight thousand dollars yeah yeah could not have been more wrong okay <laughs> <laughs> and i had this information in my notes did i bother to go back and reference it when we were recording that no. podcast no absolutely not you were looking me dead in the eyes the yes, whole time that's right um so in actuality, uh-huh. what she got in 1961 was a $30,000 life insurance payout, okay. which adjusted for inflation um, was, oh, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, did you mess got, this up, Yeah, too? I did, I did. She got a $29,000 okay. life insurance okay. payout, which adjusted for inflation is about $245,000. Okay, I'm going to take some of the blame on this because I sat here and silently thought, God, that does not seem like much at all. Yeah. Uh, now that all makes sense. Yes. Way more <laughs> sense. Makes sense that she could just go out and buy herself that powder blue yes. uh, Thunderbird that she wanted so badly. Get a new boyfriend. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So I apologize for that. I will blame my tonsil blisters. I, I don't know that there's ever been a better excuse. <laughs> Those things were crazy. <laughs> were crazy. And I will say, even though we're only recording two days later, yeah, really more like a day and a half yeah. since you basically had a sleepover at my house. Yes. <laughs> um, you significantly better. Thank goodness. Now I've turned a corner. 
Yeah. The blisters are subsiding. <laughs> the tonsils are returning to a normal size. They are no longer touching my uvula, <laughs> which is part of the vagina, as we all know. <laughs> <laughs> Those things were huge. <laughs> You mean to tell me your villa doesn't sound like part of the <laughs> does vagina? It sound like part of the vagina. Um, uh, for those of you that don't know, it's actually that hangy ball in the back of your throat. <laughs> the clit, if you will. <laughs> it's really the clit of your face. <laughs> what you call that? Your face? Fine. Your head. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Believe it or not, this is not being recorded after This dark. is not. We're a regular recording time here. Okay, next. Yeah. Oh, okay. I also made no attempt to properly pronounce John Bull Disease's last name. Yeah, we called him John B. Yeah, that's right. Um, his last name is spelled B-O-L-D-I-Z-S. And I was like, how the fuck would that even be pronounced? Well, Bull-Dies? my mother was very disappointed in me. Oh. Uh-oh. And she said, she, <laughs> she said... Um, excuse me, have you never heard of, um, Zsa, Zsa Gabor? What does that have to do with A Z and an S together are pronounced like a Zsa sound. Oh. So, his last name is Boldage. <laughs> okay, well. All right. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> I, but, you know... I feel like in that episode, the one who really dropped the ball on the names was me. So, <laughs> so that brings me to my next oh, note. No. So I got another um, love message this morning oh, from damn. Casey, my uh-huh. sister, um, about your pronunciation of Dolly's last name. <laughs> so I told you that I thought it was Osterreich. Yeah. Which is also wrong. Okay. Um, Casey took two years of German in oh, high school. All right. And so she has deemed herself an expert. Mm, great. And she says it's Eisterreich. The O-E oh. together make an I sound, like A-Y. Well, I would say two years of German makes her an expert because I had one semester of law school. <laughs> right, and I had one semester of criminal justice, and look at us go. <laughs> so according to my German expert sister, it's Eisterreich. That's so much prettier than Osterreich. <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly as pretty as, what is it, Walbur- Walburga? Walburga. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right. That concludes this week's segment of shit Brandy fucked up on last week's episode. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. <laughs> on to this week's mistakes. Great. <laughs> Let's make some new mistakes today. Here we go. I'm going to start off by saying that this um, all comes almost entirely from two sources, an article by Rachel Ball for Crime Library and an episode of American Greed. Oh, yes. You know yes. you're going to love it. This is kind of a good mashup because you love Crime Library. I do. And I love American Greed. Exactly. Okay, here we go. I'm it's ready. like this is our, our crime baby. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Marty... Frankel began life in Toledo, Ohio on November 21st, 1954, as the second of three children born to the highly respected Lucas County judge Leon Frankel and his wife Tilly. 
it wasn't really a happy family. Um, mm-hmm. Marty had a very um, strained relationship with his parents from an early age. Their his upbringing was always characterized as unhappy and in some cases abusive. Mm. Um, that seems to be the consensus about his life. However, members of his family would say that that's not entirely true. And much of the, those negative aspects of his childhood were created by Marty himself to okay. gain sympathy. So, okay. Okay. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Exactly. Um, Marty was a super bright kid. Um, He distinguished himself in school academically, but he was not very social. He was odd. um, And he had this view of himself where he was smarter than everyone around him. Oh, I love people like that. That did nothing to endear himself to his classmates. Holy (laughs) (laughs) Shockingly enough. Everyone loves a condescending (laughs) ass. Great. Yeah. Um, so up until his last couple of years of high school, Marty did excellent in school. He mm-hmm. had great grades, though he did not apply himself at all. He was able just to kind of skate by and, you know, do very little homework, very little studying and still pick up enough to pass his classes pretty well. I used to be so jealous of those people in yeah. high school yeah. that I would do that, too. But the thing is... You didn't have the same result. No! No, I wasn't smart enough to do that. So here's what I did. I um, I have that crazy sponge brain, so yeah. like just yeah. shit like stays in there. But I was terrible about doing my homework. I hated doing homework. Uh-huh. And so I do like excellent on the tests. Right. And then I have to like turn in a bunch of homework on the last second. <laughs> Why were we like that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's not like I couldn't do the homework. Like, right, right. And I'd always you catch it up. Great. Like I yeah. always did. And so, but yeah, I hated doing homework. I get so mad looking back at my high school self. It was like, you ungrateful little brat. Yeah. You've got one job to do. Yes. Go do Go it. Go do it. Yes. So, um, he's skating along doing really well and then all of a sudden he just isn't anymore and it turns out that marty has developed this kind of test phobia so he's not studying he's present in class all the time he's doing his classwork but when it comes to a test he just like freaks out and this phobia this pressure phobia would carry on with him throughout the rest of his life Hmm. Had he built himself up so much in his own head that the idea of being threatened or challenged was like I too think, much? I think likely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so he he managed to to finish high school and get into a good college. He went to the university University of Toledo, and then his anxiety about test taking just grew and grew and grew, and he ended up like racking up like two hundred hours of uncompleted credits. What? Yes. As he just would not finish a course. God, now I'm wishing I could remember how many credits it takes to finish a bachelor's degree. Right? I mean, that seems crazy. Yeah. Yes. And just like a ridiculous amount of money that would have been wasted. Yeah. Yeah. Although this was back in the day when you could have actually afford to go to yeah, school. Good, yes, exactly. The good old days. Yes. So 
He can't complete his courses because he can't handle taking the test. So he finally he drops out of college and he kind of toys with the idea of selling real estate. But as I already mentioned, he was not very personable. And yeah, you, ha- you have like, to be. That's like the number one yes. thing when it comes to being a realtor is you have to be able to be very personable. You have to talk to all kinds of people. Um, and people have to trust you. Yeah. So being a know-it-all who thinks you're better than everyone else. <laughs> that is like the worst job yes! for him. <laughs> yes. So that didn't work out. Mm. So he started to take an interest in the securities markets. Um, so he viewed the financial markets as a way of becoming wealthy very quickly. He became obsessed with learning everything he could about the brokerage business. His textbooks were the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Business Week. And he was still living with his parents at this time, but he was spending his days hanging around brokerage houses, learning how trades were made, what decisions were used to, or what what deciding factors were used about when to buy and sell stocks, um, and how to use like that specialized equipment that brokers use. Okay. So... I don't know who was letting him like just hang around like the brokerages like this, but he got a lot of firsthand knowledge from this. Okay. Um, he was sure that the world of finance would be his ticket to the lifestyle of his dreams. So he kind of grew in this, this like theoretical knowledge of how the securities market worked. He knew the ins and outs of how everything was supposed to work. Uh-huh. But he didn't have any actual, like, hands-on knowledge of doing actual trades or anything like that. Okay. And at that same time, he kind of um, became focused on the the wrong side of it as far as ethics and morals go. Great. So he became obsessed with this guy, Robert Vesco, who I'd never heard of, but no. um, he uh, swindled hundreds of millions of dollars in one of the largest frauds in U.S. history. Wow. And so he became like obsessed with this guy and learning like the ins and outs of how he did what he did. But that guy got caught, right? Of course he did. So why? Well, yeah, he could just figure out how to do it better because he's better than everyone, Kristen. I, I'm sorry. I forgot that he was better than everyone. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> So in the mid-1980s, Marty decided he was going to put all of this knowledge that he had gained into practice. And one of the brokerage houses where he had spent kind of a lot of time learning things and just observing was John F. Schultz Incorporated. It was a small company in the Toledo area and had an affiliation with Dominic and Dominic, um, which was a big trading house in New York City. John Schultz and his wife, Sonia, who was a her a a broker at their firm, and she was very successful by her own right. They were like the two partners at this firm. Mm -hmm. So Marty kind of like got his foot in the door here by pretending to want to be a client of theirs. Okay. Yeah. And so he started consulting with Sonia Schultz, um, Schultz about, you know, where the strengths in the market were and all of this. And then somehow this turned into him bouncing financial strategies off of her and her being convinced 
that he was an asset that they needed to lock down at their firm. Not a bad strategy on his part. Not at all. Not at all. But all of these hours that Marty and Sonia spent together started to have a toll on Sonia's marriage. Oh, no. John was like, I'm not thinking that I'm loving this. But Sonia was convinced that Marty was like the answer to taking their brokerage to like the next level. Because he, someone who thinks that they're better than everybody else can often sell themselves. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Like, these are the reasons I'm amazing. You need me. Uh huh. Yeah. And he, he talked a great game. He told them that he developed this system that could help them identify stocks that would be future winners. Mm-hmm. So, and he <laughs> he came up with all of these examples. He told them, you know, this did this, and I saw these things here and here and here, and then look what this stock did. Well, that is well, easy to do. You can sure do that in hindsight. It's well, sure. yeah. So, like, on close, so, so this is what won them over. They're like, yes, come on in. Be a part of our firm. Absolutely. And then John starts looking into it further, and he's like, hold the phone he didn't tell us about anything that is going to happen he's only told us about stuff that already happened yeah so john quickly becomes very suspicious well yeah as he should oh oh you know what brandy i knew that apple would be big (laughs) yeah get this Hmm. walmart called it day one yeah (laughs) we are geniuses Okay, who wants to hire us? Yeah, you've heard what we correctly predicted. So John realized very quickly that he'd made a mistake hiring Marty on at the firm, but Sonia didn't see it. And Marty just kept making John more and more mad, like with everything he did. He felt superior to everyone at this firm, even the owners of the firm themselves. Didn't Sonia and Marty have... Like a romantic relationship? Okay, there we go. And it's possible that they didn't at this point yet, but Uh it was definitely on the on-ramp to that happening. I was going to say, you would have to have some kind of romantic feelings to not, either not see the red flags or to To ignore ignore them. them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So even down to like the dress code, Marty just flat out ignored it. He came to work every day in like jeans and a t-shirt rather than the required suit and tie fucking marty that's so rude yes it's ridiculous all of this time marty just is like keeps selling this this sure shot trading system that he'd come up with and he just keeps talking it up and talking it up and talking it up and john's finally like shut up yeah like, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. You haven't shown me anything. You don't even know how to trade. You can't trade. Yeah. Things finally came to a head when Ted Bitter, who was a friend of John's, so John's, the Sonia's husband, the owner of the firm, he kind of fell under Marty's spell as well. Shit. He was super impressed by Marty's talk about the market and he put his savings in Marty's hands. Yeah. He went around John, went directly to Marty, and he was convinced that this this sure shot trading system Marty had come up with would give him the money he needed for retirement. But here's the problem. John was right. Marty was all talk. Mm-hmm. 
he didn't have the courage to conduct an actual trade. Uh-huh. It was just like that test anxiety. He couldn't do it. Yep. He had what's called trader's block. <laughs> <laughs> and he was afraid that his inability to do these trades was going to cause this whole facade that he'd build up, built up to kind of crumble and they'd figure out that he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. And it would have. Yeah. So he's over here trying to figure out what he's going to do about Ted Bitter because Ted Bitter's put all of his financial future in his hands. Right. And he can't do a trade. He doesn't know what to do. Meanwhile, he's also fucking up the Schultz relationship with this Dominic and Dominic in New York City. So Marty had fraudulently represented himself as an authorized agent of Dominic <gasps> and Dominic on leases for like the electronic equipment that stockbrokers use. Uh-huh. And so it was like a huge deal. It made the Schultz firm look terrible. It sullied their reputation with Dominic yes. and Dominic. And ultimately, Marty was fired over it. Oh, yeah. Okay. And John was like, great. You're out of our life now. We can move on. I can get my firm back under control. Ted, come on back. I'll take care of your money. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, let's move past this. But Ted still believed in Marty. He was sure that this was all a misunderstanding. (sighs) Marty had told him, you know, just bear with me. I'm going to get you this money. I promise. And so now Marty's on his own with his one client, Ted Bitter, who's John's friend. Yeah. And he starts his own brokerage business out of his parents' house. Boy. Yeah. So as so this will tell you how great he was at being able to talk his way into anything. Mm-hmm. He convinced Chicago's LaSalle Street Securities to let him be their representative in Toledo. Yeah, so this wow. is like a very well-established securities firm. Uh-huh. And he convinces them to let him be like a remote representative for them. Wow. Yes. And so with that, he formed Winthrop Capital a corporate entity that would allow him to pursue this venture. And it was just a, a bullshit, nothing company. I mean, it makes me think of the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Like he just, he just created it on paper one day. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But this time Marty went further than just fraudulently signing lease agreements when he didn't have the right to do that. He actually used the name and social security number of a friend without the friend's knowledge or consent and listed that person as the president of Winthrop Capital. Why? Because he he would be protected then if he wasn't the president of the company. What an ass. Yeah. Yeah. If this backfired, if somebody found out that this wasn't real, he wouldn't be the one whose name was on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. So as part of his partnership with the LaSalle Street Securities, Marty took out these big yellow page ads. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like it's like 1986 by this time. So that's a huge advertisement, like a way that people are doing advertising at that point. Yeah. You know, nobody even knows what a fucking phone book is anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> at that time, 
time, that was a huge way to get yeah. word out about your company. And so he took out these these yellow page ads and claimed to be the only brokerage that insured its accounts from losses in the Toledo area. Insured its ac- accounts from losses. So you, these are 100% protected investments. There's no such thing as no that. No such thing. But it's it's just like that one case that you did. Remember, yeah. you did the same yeah. thing. Yeah. You... But you tell people, like, this is a sure thing. Your money's safe. That's all they want to hear. Yeah. Because the scariest thing about investing is the risk. Absolutely. But, like, you can't. uh. Yeah. Yes. So this is going well for him. He's getting calls and whatever. Yeah. And by 1986, an opportunity came up from a contact that Marty had made when he was working back with the Schultzes. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Douglas Maxwell, heard a wildly fanciful account Mm -hmm. of how successful Marty was. And he agreed to link up with Marty to create the Frankel Fund, which would be an investment partnership fund in which a limited number of partners. So there was like a cap on how many people could get in this. And they all had to invest at least $50,000 each. Marty would then bring this fund to his to his sure shot investment plan Mm -hmm. and turn that money into a ridiculous amount of wealth. Okay. For all of these people. Okay. So this guy, Douglas Maxwell, gets involved. And then Ted Bitter gets involved. And then this new client who had responded to one of the Yellow Pages ads, his name was John Hurley. He gets involved. And all of these people, they have a minimum of $50,000 to involve, to Ugh. invest. So you know what they have? They have wealthy friends that they can also of bring. Of yes. course. Because who has $50,000 of disposable income that they're just going to throw at this? Right, besides me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the end. Yeah. Yeah. So Marty was running the Frankel Fund out of his bedroom in his parents' home. <laughs> but none of these people knew that. Of course not. Yeah. How old was he? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, So he's born in 54. So by this time, he's in his 30s. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. By this time, things are going pretty well. He's managing to, like, sell this Frankel fund as a real investment. And Mm -hmm. nobody's asking for their money back yet. So it's working. Mm -hmm. But Marty knows that where the real retirement money is, is Florida. And so he needs to move to Palm Beach, Florida, Mm -hmm. and there will be tons of investors there. And this guy, Douglas Maxwell, has a ton of partnerships in Palm Beach, Florida. So Frankel decides he's going to move there um, and really grow this fund there. Eventually, like, Upwards of a million dollars find their way into this Frankel fund. So okay. it's got investor upon investor upon investor. Um, and most of it was lost on bad trades. Mm-hmm. Douglas Maxwell ended up being the one who did all of the trades because Marty couldn't do it because of his anxiety. <laughs> uh huh. And most of it was lost. 
Um, the stuff that wasn't lost was used to cover Marty's living expenses. What do you mean lost, though? Like bad trades. Like they lost it in the market. That's impossible, though, because he it's, had that. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. He had that sure shot method. And it was guaranteed, guaranteed. to not lose That's money. Exactly so I just right. don't understand how this could have happened. Yeah. Finally, the jig was up. Yeah, I mean, there's only so long yeah. you can do this. Ted Bitter realizes that his money's gone. John Herlihy is like, fuck, where'd my money go? Uh-huh. Like, And Marty can't produce it for them. Right. And so they go to authorities. In a panic to try and keep this from going down, Frankel managed to, like, round up a certain amount of money and pay off the biggest investor to the fund. Uh-huh. So somebody could say that they had come out okay. Mm-hmm. But... He couldn't give money back to everybody. It was just gone. Yeah. So in 1991, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, finished up an investigation into this. And they barred Martin Frankel for life from the securities business. They said, you're not a genius. He's not a genius. He's not a financier. He's kind of like a a Woody Allen character that people kind of feel sorry for and then trust because of it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. And so, because he doesn't, he doesn't look like a threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so in 1991, he was, he was banned from the securities business for life. They didn't spend a ton of time on this investigation because it wasn't a ton of money that was involved. Mm-hmm. There weren't a ton of people involved. It seemed like he was just a small time operator and that with him being banned, like the threat was gone. Okay. But what the SEC missed because they didn't do a very big investigation was that Frankel had already created a new venture over on the side. How did so, they miss that? I don't they just didn't go in deep enough. So in 1989, he had already created Creative Partners Fund, um, which was another scam, just like the Frankel Fund. But the minimum investment this time was only $10,000. Oh, good. Get more people in there. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So it was designed to pull in a much broader base of investors, and it didn't require like a certain level of net worth to be involved. Like mm-hmm. your everyday people could get in this. Yes. And they're being guaranteed that their money is safe. Yes. Yeah. He hadn't created this on his own. And this is also partly why the SEC didn't find it. Okay. He had done it with the help of an established broker. Someone we've already met in oh, this no. story. She didn't. Sonia. No. Set up the fund for him. She had left John by this time and filed for divorce. And she was helping Marty. And so despite his lifetime ban, Mm -hmm. Marty's like, I am good. They didn't even see that this is going on. I'm golden. I'm going to keep on keeping on. Yeah. Yeah. So he was preparing to take this to the next level. He was focusing on creating shell corporations, mm-hmm. opening offshore accounts, mm-hmm. and learning how to launder money. Oh, great. Yes. Yep. 
Uh-huh. So, at some point in 1991, Marty met this guy, John Hackney, who was a Tennessee businessman, and he had some business, um, some banking experience. Okay. And he thought, like, this Tennessee guy thought that he was, like, this great business guy. So you've got this guy who thinks he's a genius meeting up with Marty, who knows he's a fucking genius. <laughs> I mean, just a match made in heaven, yeah. right? Yeah. And so he comes up with this idea that he wants Marty's help in. He wants him to put together a group of invest- investors to buy this troubled life insurance c- company, Franklin American Life Insurance Company of Franklin, Tennessee. So there's a reason that he wanted him to buy a life insurance company, and I'll get there in just a minute. Because I'm like, what the fuck are you going to do with a life insurance company? It's interesting. Okay. So around this time... Marty has started up another trust company, the Thuner. Thuner? <laughs> that can't be how that's pronounced. I would hope not. T H U N O R. Thuner. Thuner. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Thuner or later. <laughs> that's terrible. Wait, they have their choice to make. <laughs> he made this up. Yes. Oh my. So he sets up this trust company, and according to the documents that were set up with this, it had a $3.7 million fund from investors. That's very impressive. Yes. And uh, again, Marty wasn't alone in setting this up. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. His his good buddy, Sonia, was all on that paperwork with him, as was someone who had no idea that he was involved in any way. Um, Oh, that same friend? Different friend. Okay. The Tennessee guy, John Hackney. All of a sudden, he's the sole trustee of this Thuner Trust. (laughs) And he has no idea. Wow. Yes. So he had started, so Marty had started this trust company right about the same time that he met Hackney because he liked this idea of buying these life insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And he was like, let's set this up. In a way that I am protected, but I can get my hands on this money. Because here's what I didn't know about life insurance companies. So they can often, when they're in trouble, they can be purchased at a very low price. Because, but they're often valued way higher than that because there are state regulations that require insurance companies to keep very large reserves of money so that they can pay out claims to policyholders. Sure, that makes sense. Yes. So when an insurance company is in trouble, it is sold off at a very low price, but it has a big cash reserve on hand because of state requirements. I feel like you're giving us business tips right now. And so... Hackney meets up with Marty and he's like, hey, let's save this insurance company. Yeah. And Marty's like, yes, let's. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent idea. Excellent idea. (laughs) Very good. Yeah. And so we're talking about millions of dollars in reserve funds. So like he he could buy a life insurance company for like $48,000 and it might have a hundred or $48 million and it might have $150 million in reserve money. Holy shit. Yeah. Yes. How is that even possible? Because that money wasn't allowed to be included in the valuation of the company because it is set aside specifically for the policy. And they can't touch it to save their own business. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yes. 
Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. Yeah. So then you got this scumbag coming in here and he's like, I don't care what they say. I'll take all the money. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the plan was to use the large reserve funds for after an acquisition um, to buy another insurance company. Uh-huh. So you take the reserve, you buy sure. another one, you buy another yeah. one, you buy another this one. This is working out so great for us. Let's buy as many as we can. Yes. Yes. So the trick was to deceive the regulators into thinking that the reserves were untouched. Uh-huh. Which required a lot of creative money transfers from company to company because they were completely looting these reserves. Sure. Because Marty wanted to build this insurance empire. And then he also was using that money to fund this lavish lifestyle that he had always dreamed of. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like you buy a company. You, he had gotten super good at figuring out how to funnel the money so that the watchdogs wouldn't notice it. Uh-huh. And he'd completely just, like, deplete those reserve funds. Yep. So the first insurance company to be purchased under this scheme was the Franklin American Life Insurance Company. And he purchased that in October of 1991. Insurance regulators were thrilled to see this company saved because that's what it looked like. It looked like they saved it. It was like this Thuner Trust was going to put like $4 million into it. And in return, it had a $20 million reserve fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing he did after acquiring this first insurance company was to shut down the Creative Partners Fund. He didn't need that anymore. He pulled some money out of the insurance company, paid off those investors. I'm, this is small potatoes. Yeah. I'm done with that. Yeah. I'm on to bigger and better things. Oh, my God. I'm not dealing in tens of thousands of dollars anymore. Uh-huh. I'm dealing in millions. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this has become, at this point, a giant Ponzi scheme. Yeah. It's huge. The scale of which they're not even sure of to this day. They yeah. don't have an exact number mm-hmm. of how it's somewhere between. Are you ready for this? Yes. 200 million and $1 billion. What? Yes. Because it just kept growing and growing and growing. And it just more. snowballed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That is crazy. Crazy. Yeah. I think it's crazy that they can't get an exact like. I know, and then it would be that, that big. big range. Old, yes. Yeah. Holy shit. Yes. But it was simple. Investors give the investment company money and expect a profit, mm-hmm. and they, you know, are given breadcrumbs along yeah. the way. They're like, yeah. "Of course, here's your money. Of course, your money's doing well. Yes, yeah. look how well. You- oh, you want to pull some out? Absolutely. Yeah. As long as no one wants to pull." All, All of, of their money out. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So this keeps going. More insurance companies, more people are involved. I'm not even sure what the number of companies that they ended up buying for in it. By But by 1998, this Thuner Trust claimed to have $434 million in assets. When in actuality it had nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? I'm sure this guy's personality got so much worse Mm -hmm. after you've been caught Mm -hmm. and nothing really happens to you. And then you go on and make something so Uh much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. You would think you were the biggest genius in the world. Are you ready for this next part? I'm this I'm waiting for the Vatican. Takes like, 
We're okay. here. Okay. We're here. And this is the craziest shit I've ever heard. Okay. So things are going really well. He's got this empire built, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. He decides that he needs to set up a charitable foundation that has visible links to the Catholic Church and the Vatican. The exact reasons for this obsession are not clear, but most likely the it's that he thought that if he could link the biggest business in the world, that it would offer protection of some form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, the Catholic Church is the largest business mm-hmm. in the world. And they're really good at covering up bad stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he thought that this would lend an air of um, respectability uh-huh. to his business. Yeah. Legitimacy, yep. respectability. Yep. Absolutely. And... Um, he may have even believed that it would make it easier to buy larger insurance companies. If he had the backing of the Catholic Church, it would maybe make people do less investigation into him when he's looking to acquire something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So Marty spent a lot of time researching individuals that he thought could help him, like, get this idea going. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he found three prominent people that he deceived into putting their reputations, careers, and futures on the line for him. Thomas Bolin, Father Peter Jacobs, and Monsignor Emilio Colagiovanni. Monsignor? Monsignor. Uh, so Thomas Boland was actually a lawyer, and he was he knew a lot of people. He was a close personal friend of President Ronald Reagan. Like, <laughs> okay, he was a very he was a super conservative guy, but he mm-hmm. was very well respected and had was his ties to the Catholic Church were very well known. Sure, Father Peter Jacobs was considered a celebrity priest in New York. He devoted his life um, with great success to the poor and downtrodden in New York City. He was known as Father Jake, and he was known as kind of a a liberal priest who was well-connected in Rome, though he spent most of his time in New York City. Um, He was Hmm. actually a good friend of Gloria Steinem and Norman Mailer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, he'd have to be a liberal priest then. Yeah. Okay. And he served um, for many years as a chaplain to kids in a Harlem high school. So he was very involved in some good things in New York City. Okay. And then Monsignor (laughs) Emilio Colagiovanni. Mm -hmm. He was a elderly judge emeritus of the Roman Rota which is a church tribunal. I don't know much about the Catholic Church. I'm sorry. Um, so I don't no, know what neither. the fuck it means. But mm-hmm. <laughs> And he also was the president of the Monitor Ecclesiasticus Foundation, which um, was some kind of foundation that was um, established in Naples in 1967. So what would these three distinguished men... Why would they spend their time talking to Marty Frankel? 
Money. The answer, of course, is money, Kristen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Frankel reaches out to them. And he doesn't even, he's not even going by Marty Frankel at this time. He's assumed some other identity. He's calling himself David Rossi. Uh-huh. Um, which is actually a real friend of his. Mm-hmm. Because I guess if they, you know, look too hard into Marty Frankel, they might find out that he's not sure who he says he is. Sure, why not? Yeah. And so he convinced these three that he was a wealthy genius and he wanted to give some $50 million to Catholic Charities. Mm. And he needed their help to do that. Yeah, who's going to question that? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So he did a lot of preparation for this, and they they kind of call this like his ultimate con. Mm -hmm. Um, He became an expert on the Catholic Church and on St. Francis of Assisi. He sent... um, like his employees on missions to scour bookstores and the internet for every possible volume they could find on the subjects. Dozens of books on St. Francis and other Catholic saints like filled Frankel's library. And he watched their like Franco Zeffirelli film about St. Francis like over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. He wanted to know everything he could and recite it at the drop of the hat. Yeah. He could give a complete recitation of the 13th century's 13th century saint's life, and he could discuss all of the details of like every bit of the Catholic Church. He knew it all, inside and out. Mm-hmm. He could answer any question any of these three could come up with. Huh. But I'm I'm willing to bet that they didn't have that many questions for him, right? No, I'm sure they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so he pitched it um, as this idea of set, setting up the St. Francis of Assisi Foundation. And it seemed like a good idea. They were impressed with Frankel, a.k.a. Rossi's, mm-hmm. um, knowledge of Catholic saints and institutions and promised to help introduce the proposal um, to decision makers in the Vatican. They're like, we're taking this directly to the source. We Uh, got you. Taking it to the man with the biggest hat. Yes. But by the time that meeting in Rome took place, the idea had changed a little bit. The foundation would be headquartered in Liechtenstein, and it would have secret bylaws designating Rossi as the original grantor of the $55 million endowment, $50 million of those funds would be forwarded to a U.S. brokerage account, which, um, of course, Rossi would, you know, have full control over. Sure, because he's so good at managing money. That's so correct. That's, yeah, you don't That's correct. And then the other $5 million would, of course, Kristen, would go directly into an account um, that was controlled by the Vatican. Yeah. Of course. That seems like a, a good split. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take this fifty million, and then uh, you guys can control this five million. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, as if those that didn't get like shady enough, yeah. Rossi added another stipulation that said their agreement will include that the Vatican's promise that the Vatican will aid Rossi 
in his effort to acquire insurance companies. And it would permit it, it would permit a Vatican official to certify to the authorities, if necessary, that the source of the funds is the Vatican. Wait, say that one more time. So there was a stipulation in this agreement uh-huh. that the Vatican, if he if they started this fund, the Vatican would then help Rossi, Frankel, uh-huh. s- acquire more insurance companies. And that, if needed, the Vatican would say that they were paying for the insurance companies rather than Frankel. That is so unethical. Uh, yeah. And the church agreed to it. Well... <laughs> No. Apparently somebody at the Vatican was paying attention because it didn't get completed in the way okay. that Frankel wanted. Okay. Um, the final deal did take place, but it wasn't exactly how Marty proposed it. It would not be – so it wouldn't be directly tied to the Vatican. Instead – it was tied to Monsignor Colagiovanni and his existing foundation that he worked with. Okay. So it was tied to the Vatican through a third party. Mm-hmm. Because the Monsignor's organization was tied to the Vatican and now this fund was tied to Right. Mon- okay. So he didn't get exactly what he wanted, but most of the aspects of that original $55 million deal remained in place. Well, yeah, he got very damn close. He got way Uh too damn close to exactly what he wanted. Yeah. So they've, as this kind of all came out, they started calling this the Immaculate Connection. Oh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) But basically it would keep a regulatory community from looking too closely at his insurance empire. Uh And... The church would benefit from a safe distance Mm -hmm. from his crooked dealings. It was the perfect deal for everyone. They got to have money funneled to them without it, you know, looking too terrible. Mm -hmm. And he got the backing he needed. This makes me sick. It's horrible. Yeah. So by this time, I mean, I think Marty's head's fucking huge. He can barely stand up straight. Well, sure. Right? So he has just started his whole life. He wanted to be popular. He wanted to be liked. He didn't have anything to offer in the personality category. But now he had the thing that can make up for a lack of personality. Money. Money. That's right. Yeah. He was quoted as saying money buys love. Oh. Yes. Boy, honey. Yeah. So Marty had not had a sexual relationship in his life until Sonia. Like, so he was was 32 years old by the time that he and Sonia started having an affair. And that was the first sexual relationship he'd ever had in his life. By now, by this time, Marty is living his best life. He has all the money in the world. He decides he is going to set up this amazing house and he's going to move Sonia and her daughters in. And so he leases this crazy mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. I have an address for you if you want to look it up. He leased it? He leased it. Probably he can't buy it because they start looking too deep into his finances, right? 
I thought you leased a car. I didn't think you leased a house. You lease a house? Oh, okay. Yeah. These are the things I don't know. <laughs> okay. okay, lay that on me. Uh, 889 Lake Avenue, Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay, got it, got it. Here we go. Oh, I'm just looking at a rock wall. Oh, okay. Um, hang on. I think I saw it on Zillow. I saw like a little picture of it earlier. It but... says it's currently not for sale, but it's 6,800 square feet. Yeah, it's huge. Good grief. And this is like, yeah, I can't find an actual picture of the house itself, though. Well, that's a bummer. Hang on. Try, ooh, okay. Go to Remax. They've got the uh, bird's eye view of the place. Oh, good. Okay. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I mean, the house has a parking lot. It, in fact, does. That is a honking piece of property. No kidding. In Greenwich, Connecticut. That is a hefty price tag, you know. Pronounced Greenwich. It is not pronounced <laughs> Greenwich. <laughs> so... He sets up this house. He moves Sonia and her daughters in. Her poor ex-husband. Can you imagine? Oh, no. No. Although, you know, I'm sure he eventually. Yeah. But along with all of this money comes paranoia from Marty, obviously. And he sets up all of this crazy security stuff. He has this, this high fence Installed around the entire three-acre property, <laughs> um, which, of course, pissed all the neighbors off. Well, sure. And rumors started spreading constantly around town about all the secretive behavior that was going on at this compound. They started calling it a compound. Mm-hmm. So his empire is growing. His embezzlement scheme is going perfectly. <laughs> He's got the girl. He's got the house. His ego is fucking huge. Uh-huh. So now. <laughs> I mean, if his ego was huge when he was living yeah. at mommy and daddy's house, running a business out of his bedroom. Yeah. This has to be ridiculous. So what do you think is missing from his life now, Kristen? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, could be a mistress. Mm-hmm. Could be, I mean, for me, it'd be a dog. You haven't mentioned a dog. Um, more stuff? Um, you were close on the mistress. Okay. Kinky sex, Kristen. Oh. He's missing kinky sex. I should have guessed it. You should have. <laughs> so this dark side of Marty starts to emerge. Uh-huh. And he became obsessed with S&M and group sex. So he sets up like this other house on the same street. In Greenwich, and he basically is running a brothel out of it. The neighbors are pissed. Can you imagine? And he you've starts, got a multi-million-dollar house, and then next door is a brothel yeah. for some weirdo. Yeah. Oh. Um. Sonya's pissed. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. There were just young women of all forms coming in and out of this house. <laughs> One was shaped like a star. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All forms. <laughs> he was putting ads in the paper, like S&M ads, and people were responding to them and coming to the house. There was just, like, girls everywhere. Like They, they called it his harem. Like, Ugh. it's just disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just escalating and ex- escalating and just... I'm sorry. The woman's name is Sylvia, right? Sonia. Sonia. Sonia knew about this. Yeah. And she was 
his only real traitor, right? Um, or she was a critical part. She was a critical part in setting up all of the legitimate, like the the companies in the beginning. Yes, she leaves. She's over it. She and uh, the gr- she and the girls move out. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, she's had enough. Um, I think the brothel is where I would also draw the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So at some point, a young woman named Frances Burge responds to one of Marty's ads. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are like ads in like a shady men's magazine. Like, Well, sure. Yeah. And so she shows up at the house and he is just, he's not impressed with her. She's not what he's looking for, but he allows her to stay and she stays for a while. And then. Well, her name was Frances, so she was secretly <laughs> 70, right? right. <laughs> um, and then. Something happened, and in the summer of 1997, she was found hanging (gasps) on the deck in the back of the mansion. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was ruled a suicide. No, it wasn't. It was. Oh. It was. um, It was the other women in the house said she battled with depression and whatever. So who knows what happened? I mean, poor Francis. Yeah. This was kind of like the the tipping point for Marty. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, shit. I think everything's about to spiral out of control. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. It was inevitable, and Marty finally knew it. Eventually, some state insurance regulator would start poking around, and the jig would be up. Yeah. Like... The beginning of the end came in Mississippi. Wire transfers in and out of insurance company reserve accounts were central to deceiving the state regulars. We talked about that early on. Like he had a way of making the reserves look like they hadn't been touched when he was funneling the money out yeah. of them. And so the in- insurance commissioner in Mississippi, George Dale, started asking questions about where this money would be going. So he's like, why is money being funneled in and out all the time? Like, Mm -hmm. this doesn't make sense. And he was like the first one to kind of catch this. And this has been going on for years at this point. Yeah. It's May of 1999. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he's like, I think that something's going on here. And so he made some phone calls And he started looking into one specific one of these insurance companies, Liberty National Securities. Um, That was it was actually Liberty National Securities was actually handling the funds Uh of one of these insurance companies. And so he called up Liberty and he wanted to talk to whoever's in charge. It turns out that Liberty National Securities was nothing more than a mailbox in New York. Uh huh. Yep. And so he started taking a deeper look. And he started looking into the St. Francis of Assisi Foundation. Mm -hmm. And each step he took, he got more and more concerned. He wasn't exactly sure what he had found, but he knew something was up. Something was up. And so he placed Marty's three Mississippi-based insurance companies under state supervision. Whoa. Yeah. Big fucking deal. Yeah. 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 So it all came tumbling down in May of 1999. So Marty 
suddenly had to make all of these plans. He started delegating key tasks to his colleagues. He had fal- false passports made. He got fake identities made. Uh, he <laughs> gathered several million dollars in diamonds. That's what you need. Um, he had cash. He had hideouts organized. He gassed up a private jet to make his escape out of the United States. All the while, he had his astrological guide with him, telling him (laughs) what his next move should be. What was his sign? I don't know. I bet he was a Scorpio. (laughs) Can we look it up? Yeah, well, we know his birthday. Okay. His birthday's November 21st. (laughs) Is that a Scorpio? Um, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up! I think it is. Scorpio date site. Okay, hang on. October 23rd to November 22nd. Knew it. Ooh. Knew it. Is it because you're also a Scorpio? So yeah, you we're, know you're crazy? we're the assholes. <laughs> <laughs> we're the assholes with the big egos. That's, that's correct. Brandy. <laughs> you're supposed to be like, no. <laughs> so just a couple days after those Mississippi companies were put under observation or mm-hmm. what what did i say they called it state, state obs- supervision okay. state, state supervision marty along with two of his girlfriends slash employees maybe uh-huh <laughs> uh, well you can buy love fled the united states and headed to europe mm-hmm. if obviously he doesn't get away with this but He's an idiot for not getting away with this. If you can't get away with it and you have your own private jet. No fucking shit, And you right? have millions of dollars. Yeah. You're an idiot. Yeah. So at his mansion, he left behind all kinds of crazy shit, like burnt papers and all kinds of records and a handwritten to-do list. <laughs> and task number one was... Escape. Launder money. <laughs> No. <laughs> Followed by get money to Israel to get back in. <laughs> so You're kidding le- me. No, he left behind his plan. Like what an idiot. Who writes launder money on a to-do right? list? Yeah. So he also left, left behind one of his astrological charts, um, <laughs> which was designed to help him answer the following questions. <laughs> Will I go to prison? Will Tom turn me in? Should I leave? Should I wire money back from overseas? Will I be safe? What do you think the answer to those questions are, Kristen? Well, I'm thinking the authorities were like, great, who's this Tom guy? We got to go find him. (laughs) (laughs) Four months went by Mm -hmm. with Marty Frankel on the run. Mm -hmm. He was... Not really on the run. He was shacked up in a posh hotel in Germany thinking he was... Such an idiot. Yeah, a fucking idiot. Like, he was just hanging out with that girlfriend slash employee named Cindy. Mm-hmm. Um, they, like, so four months have gone by. They've had this great dinner. It's like 11 o'clock. They're laying in bed in this posh hotel room. Mm-hmm. And Marty sits up and he's like, what was that? And he says that he heard a noise at the door. Mm-hmm. And Cindy's like, you're being ridiculous. And he's like, I think they're coming to get me. And she's like, stop. Like, 
They haven't come to get you yet. Nobody's here. Nobody knows it's you're been here. Four it's whole been four months. whole months. We're doing great. We just ate all this lobster. I'm going to sleep. And just then, two German policemen broke in, broke into the room, and they took Marty Frankel into custody. It's actually funny because when they came in the room, they were focused on Cindy, and they seemed very confused. Because Marty just didn't look like an international fugitive. <laughs> finally, he was like, because he's just this like tall, lanky, skinny guy. Hold and finally, on. he Hold was on. like, I'm, it's me. I'm the one you're looking for. Martin, what was his last Frankel. name? Frankel. Frankel. Okay, I got to look him up. Oh. Yeah, no, he, he looks pretty lame. Yeah. Gosh, were his glasses always askew, or was that just one bad picture? I think always. God, the confidence that white men have. I'm telling you. Okay, okay, I'm I'm good. So, in October of 1999, um, Martin Frankel was indicted for masterminding the fraud that looted an alleged 200 million dollars mm-hmm. from insurance companies in several states. Um, so prosecutors in the U.S. were building their case against Marty, but he's still over in Germany because Germany was building their own case against him for carrying false passports and various customs infractions, including smuggling in millions of dollars in diamonds. I don't understand what he was doing with the millions of dollars in diamonds. See, I think, I think the diamonds were a good idea. Why? If you're truly going to go on the run, Mm -hmm. you could use diamonds to get whatever currency you need. You don't have to go through a bank. I mean, like, it's not not a terrible idea. Yeah, I just wouldn't even know how to go about accruing millions of dollars in diamonds. Well, that's one of the things that separates you from this. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he went to Jared? was all over Jared. <laughs> I hate those commercials. So I do too. I don't care yeah. for them at all. <laughs> so he's over here in Germany and he in a surprise move pled guilty to the charges in Germany because he believed it could help him a delay or maybe even completely avoid extradition to the United States. Mm. So did he just believe that on his own or did a lawyer? Tell well, him that? no, I think he just believed it on his own. So God, here's guy. why. So in June of 2000, Marty was 45 years old by that time. OK, he was sentenced to three years in jail in Germany and fined one point six million dollars in diamonds. <laughs> Great. <laughs> for the smuggling charges. So. When that happened, he did an interview with like a German newspaper And was like, this is what I'm facing here. And I will gladly pay for my crime. Mm -hmm. But if you extradite me to the United States, I will be looking at the rest of my life in prison. Mm -hmm. Which is cruel and unusual. No, it's not. Will you, as a a country, Germany, allow that to happen? What? Yes, he basically like said, 
you need to protect me. You know how crazy that American justice system is. <laughs> Save me. Keep me here. Don't extradite me because you know what's waiting for me there is cruel and unusual. Uh, He's equated it to basically a death sentence. Oh, I, d- I don't even know what to say. This guy drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's going to be Germany's charity case. Yes, that's exactly what he said. Oh, he we said, feel so sorry he for said, you. I hope that Germany will respect its commitment to human rights. Fuck right off! You don't have a right to commit crimes no. and then escape the justice system. That's no. not your human right. No! Fuck right off! Ugh. Yes. So, he entered into kind of this lengthy appeals process in Germany. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the case is working its way through the justice system in America. Were the people of Germany, like, feeling so sorry for them that they all just reached into their pockets? Oh, yeah. They, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Absolutely. Finally, in... March of 2001, it became clear that Marty was going to be extradited to yeah. the United States. And so, of course, he did what any normal person would do. And he um, attempted to use a piece of wire to cut through the bars of his cell and escape. <laughs> <laughs> but he was caught on security camera. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. And two weeks later, he was officially charged in arraigned in American court and he pled not guilty to the charges of stealing $215 million from insurance companies. He also pled not guilty to charges of racketeering, money laundering, and fraud. Why didn't the Germans save him? (laughs) (laughs) He was facing up to 150 years in prison and 6.5 million dollars in fines. Okay. So he was ready to fight it and he really I don't Well, cuz he was not guilty. Not and guilty. It was also That's exactly cruel right. and unusual. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ultimately, he ended up pleading guilty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um in exchange for a much lighter sentence. Good call. 17 years is what he ended up being he sentenced to. He only got 17 17 years. years. Okay. That must have been just some lazy prosecution because... 17 years. Uh, I think that there was partially part of it was that he had to agree to kind of tell them how he did certain things. See, that's what I mean by lazy prosecution. Uh-huh. Well, and not maybe lazy is not the right word, but it's one of those crimes that I'm sure yeah. it's hard to know exactly what we have here. It's kind of mm-hmm. risky to take it in front of a jury. So, yep. oh, God. Yeah. 17 years. 17 years. And he didn't end up serving all 17 years. Shut up. He's already out of prison. Oh, come on. Yep. I hate this. He's out of prison. He did get in trouble following his release. Oh, boy. So part of the, so I think he served, he was released in 2015. Um, So I don't know total time served because he was, spent some time in Germany and whatever, but. um, I mean. 11 years, I think is what he spent in prison. grief. He really had nothing to fear about America then. No. Yeah. So somewhere between 11 and 13 years, I think, is what he ended up serving. So part of the condition of his early release was that he had to spend six months in a halfway house. Mm-hmm. And he got in trouble when he was at the halfway house and he got sent back to prison for a time. Really? Yeah, because they said he had a bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and 
so the judge sent him back to prison for like a couple months and then he had to go do it again and he's he's out of prison now um wow what's he doing now i don't know he has no money now and he can't do any kind of business well we've heard that before right so i'm not sure i don't know what he's up to these days wow yeah so in September of 2002, 82-year-old Monsignor Colagiovanni pled guilty to participating in the insurance scam. And I don't know, it got somewhere around five years for mm-hmm. it. Death um, sentence, in other words. Well, right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And then Sonia Schulte, Schultz, whatever, she also ended up pleading guilty to lesser charges of racketeering and money laundering and served some amount of time. Nothing significant. Wow. Yep. That was crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe he was a genius. If he, if he only he served that amount of time for what he did. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. Yep. Man, white collar crime is where it's at. No kidding yeah isn't that nuts yeah he's a fit he was officially released on october 27th 2016 so from the halfway house and everything Mm -hmm. so he's been a free man for the last two and a half years (laughs) isn't that nuts i'm so angry right now and that like i'm just thinking of all the people who are in prison for like pot or like just i know and it's like this guy but clearly (sighs) Clearly, he's some level of genius that he managed to make some crazy connections with the fucking Vatican. I mean, he. You know, I hate to call people geniuses. I know. But I think when you throw ethics to the wind. Oh, yeah. And you have an understanding that money can buy everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we all know enough about the Catholic Church now to Mm -hmm. know that you can. uh, Hmm. They're not always on the up and up, so... Crazy. That was one of the craziest fraud cases I've ever come across. Like, the scope of it is nuts. And that they still don't even really know. Yeah. Like, $200 million is, like, the minimum. And you know he's got money squirreled away somewhere. He's doing just fine. I, yeah. I guarantee you Marty Frankel is doing just fine. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably looking at his astrological chart right now. Did you say astrological? Astrological. <laughs> okay, let's. I'm gonna pull it up. Should we pull up his horoscope for today? Yeah, yeah. Let's see what it is. Okay. Taking the easy way out won't. <laughs> <laughs> Taking the easy way out won't tempt you in the least today. This is not to say that you usually favor this approach (laughs) by any means, yet it's safe to say that everyone is tempted from time to time. Well, goddamn. Well, if that's not fitting for Marty. Oh, Marty. Oh, Marty. You know what I'm guessing? Huh. I'm guessing authorities don't want to know how big this thing was. Oh, I guarantee. Because if they found out how big it was, if people found out, and then it was like, yeah, we... We let him stay in jail for seven years, then there'd be outrage. There is actually, let me see if I can find this quote that I was going to read. I skipped over it earlier. When they kind of did like a deep dive into this and figure out what the fuck happened. Uh Uh-huh. So 
Congress looked into this. So Congress's general general accounting office in September of 2000 looked into this and they placed the blame on how this got so out of control and so missed. They placed the blame squarely on state insurance regulators. Um, Hmm. So Congressman John Dingell of the House Commerce Committee wrote, this travesty occurred because state insurance regulators were either too blind to see or too unwilling to acknowledge the scam Mr. Frankel perpetrated. This fraud went on for far too long, not because Mr. Frankel was clever and deceptive, but because he was operating in an environment where the regulators lacked the skill, authority, access to basic information, resources, and healthy skepticism necessary. Wow. Yeah, not good. No. Okay, I'm going to run to the bathroom. Yes. I will be right back to talk to you about road rage. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay. It was February 11th, 2000. Sarah McBurnett was driving down the road near San Jose International Airport with her 10-year-old dog, Leo, in the car. Leo is a Bichon Frise, mm-hmm. um, so one of those super cute little fluffy white dogs. I have a funny dogs. story about that. Okay. What is it? My mom and I were at a do- uh, like a pet store one time, and it was like one of those gross pet stores that has like the puppy mill dogs in yeah. it. Yeah. But... Um, I think we were buying fish. I don't, we weren't definitely weren't buying a puppy mill dog. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, we were looking at the dogs, and there was this girl there with her mom. She was like a teenage girl, and she looked at one, and she goes, "Mom, is that a bitchin'?" <laughs> In a way, it was. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. Um. So Sarah and the bitchin were heading down the road. <laughs> And they were going to the airport to pick up Sarah's husband, who is a pilot, when all of a sudden, this SUV cut them off. Sarah says she couldn't help it. She accidentally tapped the SUV's bumper. Mm -hmm. You know, it happens. Mm -hmm. So both vehicles pulled over. Sarah sat in her car, gathering her license, registration, Mm -hmm. and insurance. But the driver of the SUV jumped out of his vehicle, and he stormed over to Sarah's car and started yelling at her. She rolled down her window and apologized, you know, trying to say, hey, I didn't mean it. But, you know, this guy was pissed. He was just this, you know, angry 20-something-year-old white guy yelling at her. Uh And the apology did nothing. He was enraged. Leo hopped up onto her lap, wagging his tail. Uh 
pause. Yeah. Is something going to fucking happen to Leo? How dare you, Kristen? And that's when the man reached through Sarah's. <gasps> I'm sorry. Reached through Sarah's open window, pulled Leo off of her lap and out of the car. The man threw the dog into oncoming traffic. What the fuck is the matter with you? <laughs> I, I'm not the one who did you it. You picked this case. <laughs> you know I can't handle dog stuff. I thought about warning you. Traffic was heavy that night. Sarah freaked out. She says she loved Leo like a child. Oh, God, I regret doing this one. The look on your face. I'm so sorry. So she ran into oncoming traffic to try to save Leo. But before she could get to him, he was struck several times. She was. What is the matter with you? I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm looking at your face right now, and I'm. I feel terrible. I knew this would be. Are you gonna make me watch a dog's purpose next? No, I don't think anyone. There's a should new watch one. A dog's way homes out now. You want to check that out? I. I would never listen. Marley and me. I watched that one time. Couldn't handle it. No, I can't do any of those. Okay, so Leo's Leo's fucking dead. Great. Well, not yet. <laughs> no, you just been hurt really badly by several cars. He's been struck several times. So Sarah was able to reach Leo. She brought him back to her car. By that point, the man in the SUV had sped off. She rushed him to a veterinary hospital, but Leo died on the way there. Of course he did. Sarah was traumatized. By the whole ordeal, as obviously. As was Brandy <laughs> just hearing about it. She says she was so overcome by grief that it like didn't even occur to her to call the police until a few days later. Mm-hmm. But she did. By that point, a lot of people who'd been on the road that day and witnessed what that man had done had already called the police. Because uh, can you imagine if you saw that happen? No, I can't. I mean, that would be so traumatizing. I could have lived everyone. my whole life and never heard that something <laughs> like that had happened. I'm sorry. You've been doing so well lately. I just <laughs> wanted to drag <laughs> you back down. Me down. So Sarah told the police her story, and soon enough, word got out. Sarah worked hard to find the man who killed Leo. All she really had to do was tell her story. That was enough to get people involved. Soon, donations poured in. Someone created a website to monitor the story and give updates on the quest for Leo, which back in the day, setting up a website in 2000, people cared. Yeah. Police gathered descriptions from eyewitnesses, and they had a sketch artist work on a composite of the man. Sarah told them what she could. He was a white guy, probably between 20 and 28. He had a goatee. He drove a dark SUV with Virginia plates. Mm -hmm. But it was tough. Sarah's description wasn't the same as some of the other witnesses. And no one had memorized the license plate. Mm -hmm. But the public rallied around Sarah Within just a few weeks of telling her story, they raised $40,000 as a reward for the arrest and capture of the angry mm-hmm. white man. 
as the story became more widespread. So this is where I... Okay, I'm going to say this next part. A lot of people questioned why so much money was being raised over a dead dog when there were so many other worthy causes. This became like a big thing in Uh the press. Like, you know, they'd tell the story. People would freak out. Yeah. And donations would pour in. And then, you know, people would freak out about like, what about missing children? What about this? What about that? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think you'd never... some. Yes, there are probably more worthy causes, but you don't know what. People get drawn in on cases like on on mm-hmm. stories like this. And yes, it go, people want to help. Yeah. Like, I, I, yes, there are more worthy causes, but I don't think it's unusual. I, it's funny because as I was reading this, I started feeling myself a little like. Wow, all this. And you know, I'm obsessed with my dog. I yeah. love my dog to death. But I was kind of like, ugh, I don't know. But one of the things I really dislike is when people are like, why are you doing that when you could be doing yeah. that? Why are you giving to that charity when there's also this other charity? Yeah. It's like, shut up. Yeah. People are trying to do something nice. Mm-hmm. People are trying to right a wrong. Yeah. Put it with your gatekeeping. That's right. Is that an example of gatekeeping? Um, it's not. Um, is it? Might be. Should we look up an official definition? Gatekeeping is when you're like, you can't be cultured unless you can tell the difference between, you know, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So the activity of controlling and usually limiting yeah. yeah, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, sure, no. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't like it when... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Weeks went by, but nothing was really happening. Police had hundreds of leads, but none of them were the right guy. Turns out, it's really easy to say, hey, I found an angry white man. Uh-huh. Very hard to say, I found the, the angry, angry white man. man. <laughs> Absolutely. Sarah got frustrated. She went on Oprah. She talked about what happened, and police got 80 more tips. But time kept marching on. 80 specifically? Yeah, that's what this article said. <laughs> Who am I to question? <laughs> Should I have said 83? I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> the reward fund grew to more than $120,000. Okay. Yeah, that seems like a lot, mm, right? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, after a 14-month investigation, police got a tip that led, led to a man named Andrew Burnett. He was an out-of-work telephone repairman. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. And he was 27. Mm-hmm. He was already in jail. Oh. For what? Turns out. He'd been charged with stealing thousands of dollars worth of equipment from his former employer. Oh. Why do people steal at work? Then you lose your job. You lose your job and you get in trouble with. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't steal from work. Don't steal at all. How about? Well, but especially, I mean, if we're giving advice. (laughs) (laughs) Also, he was charged with lying to get out of a speeding ticket. Is that an official crime? Yeah, apparently it is. So here's what he did. 
He got caught speeding Mm -hmm. and then filed a document saying that he couldn't have been speeding that day because he was in Bosnia serving in the military. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a pretty easy thing for authorities. uh, So obviously he was not in Bosnia. (laughs) Andrew's trial took place in June of 2001. And it was pretty short. He pled not guilty to felony animal cruelty charges. Because... Here's the thing. This had all been a gigantic misunderstanding. Listen, and boy, you are going to be feeling pretty bad for our buddy Andrew, who might be in Bosnia right now, might not be, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> in opening arguments, defense attorney Mark Garcia... <sighs> I missed a word in the script, (laughs) said (laughs) Sarah McBurnett hit Andrew's car twice that day. And yes, yes, he was angry. So he walked to her car to confront her. And he was standing outside her driver's side door, gesturing for her to pull over when Leo bit his hand. So just running off natural instincts like anybody would. He flung him into oncoming traffic. Yeah, yeah, it was your oopsies. No. The dog dropped to his side. And, you know, after that happened, well, you know, um, Andrew just walked back to his car, waited for the light to turn green, and went on his merry way. Bullshit. He, whoa, he had no way of knowing that Leo would die. You know, he was just, he just acted the way anyone would. No. When they got bit on the hand. No. Bullshit. (laughs) Deputy District Attorney Troy Benson said the exact same thing in court. He said, no, bullshit. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) No. Troy said, Sarah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sarah accidentally bumped into this guy's car and he went ballistic after he cut her off. Let's not leave that out. Well, and you know, I, I, I just, I don't really get road rage. It's like these things just happen yeah. sometimes. It was an innocent, it was an innocent accident, and thanks to Andrew, Sarah is scarred for life. Ah, uh, yes, and so is Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> Weird that they didn't mention. Oh, I know. You. A witness testified that Andrew jumped out of his car, flailing his arms and yelling. He did not angrily yet calmly walk to Sarah's vehicle. (laughs) He said that Andrew threw the dog about five feet. Other eyewitnesses also testified, and Sarah took the stand. She sobbed. She told the whole story, and she said that no, Leo never bit Andrew. I mean, Leo seemed like a pretty happy little dog. One of the things they said, and I didn't write this down, was that the reason Leo kind of jumped over to her side was that usually, like, when they would go to the bank together, he would always get a little treat from yeah. the teller. So, you know, he saw someone coming up. and Yeah, he thought he was getting a treat. Instead, he died. Thank you, Kristen. I shouldn't have said that part, should what? I? Why <laughs> you say that? I'm sorry. This is horrible. I mean, they raised over $120,000. Does that make you feel better? Like... No! (laughs) Andrew was expected to take the stand in his defense, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. And here's why. 
Before the trial, investigators discovered that Andrew might have had a history of violence toward animals. Mm. His former Navy supervisor was Audrey Warren. She came forward and said that when they were serving in Puerto Rico, he told her that he'd beaten a dog to death with a police nightstick. Excellent. Yeah. Great. More dead dogs. I'm sorry. <laughs> the pro- Kristen, I couldn't handle the Pekingese dogs that were left in their kennels in the middle of the street in your John Robinson case. Okay. What fucking made you think I could handle this? I, I knew you wouldn't do well with it. Um, <laughs> your, your reaction to that one was especially weird because that was like after so many dead women. And then you were like, <laughs> what happened to the dogs? <laughs> Did they go a few hours without water? Shut up! I love dogs! What about humans? I also love humans. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Humans can fend for themselves, though. A small Pekingese dog who's locked in a kennel is going to get very hot and very (laughs) thirsty. I had just finished talking about dead women. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I'm sorry. (laughs) You monster. Okay. Hold on. So you beat a dog with a nightstick. Yes, I remember exactly where we're at, Kristen. (laughs) So the prosecution obviously wanted to talk about that at trial. They wanted to bring in Audrey to testify. But the defense fought hard for that testimony to not be heard in court. Mm -hmm. It'd be devastating to their case. It sure would. Ultimately, the judge, the judge ruled that Audrey could only testify if the defense raised the issue of Andrew's character. And obviously, that could have come up mm-hmm. if he'd taken the stand in his own defense. Mm-hmm. So wisely, the defense chose not to put him on yeah. the stand. They chose not to address his character at all, so the prosecution wasn't able to bring up his, this other witness. Uh-huh. In closing arguments, the prosecution mocked the idea that Andrew reached into the car for innocent reasons. Troy said, what was he thinking when he reached into the car and grabbed the dog? Did he think Leo wanted a walk? Did he think the dog needed some fresh air? The jury of eight women and four men deliberated for just 40 minutes. Holy shit. Yeah. What do you think they found? Guilty. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Andrew faced up to three years in prison. Mm -hmm. But a probation report recommended that he get just probation or at the absolute most one year in county jail. What do you think someone should get for this? Life in prison. (laughs) (laughs) For real. What do you think? Um, Like a year. See, I actually... Even though, like, you and I are obviously reacting to this mm-hmm. story in very different ways, I think the punishment for this kind of thing mm-hmm. should be super harsh. Mm-hmm. Under Using the logic that if you're going to do that to dogs... You could do it to people. You're for sure... In my mind, you're for sure going to do yeah. it to people. So you need to, like, we need mm-hmm. to get you off the streets. Mm-hmm. Anyway. At his sen- sentencing... Sarah addressed the court. She said, Words can never convey the depth of love I had for my dog, Leo. About Andrew, she said, His clear intent was to terrorize me in the fastest and clearest way he could under the circumstances. 
Yeah, to me, this guy's freaking psycho. Yeah. But Andrew didn't see it that way. He wanted leniency. It had all been an accident. He said, I'm really sorry for what happened. I'd like to say that I'm sorry to the McBurnett family. If there's anything I could ever say or do to bring back Leo, I would. But Judge Kevin Murphy didn't believe him. Kevin Murphy? What? Kevin Murphy, what about? Hair products. Really? Yeah. It's like Paul Mitchell's less successful (laughs) brother? I mean, (laughs) Kevin Murphy? Yeah, Kevin Murphy. What's he do? He makes hair products. He's a celebrity stylist. Oh. Should I Google him now? I mean, are you questioning Ooh, very me? sleek packaging. Yeah, I love the packaging. Aww. It's very pricey stuff. Good God, it sure is. Uh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> this is why I haven't heard of him. Okay. But Judge Kevin Murphy, with his perfect hair, <laughs> didn't believe Andrew. He said this was not an accident. And on top of that, he didn't even believe that Andrew was sorry. Mm-hmm. The Nor judge do said, I. The judge said... To describe his story as unbelievable is being polite. It is insulting to my intelligence. It is insulting to the intelligence of anyone who thinks. It is preposterous. Wow. Yet this judge was fired up. The judge said that Andrew was a danger to the community. Then he gave Andrew the maximum sentence of three years in prison. Wow. The courtroom erupted in applause. Mm-hmm. Because by this point, you know, animal rights people yeah. were all involved. I mean, people cared a lot. But the defense was stunned. Defense attorney Mark Garcia said he couldn't believe the verdict. It was Andrew's first offense. This was unprecedented. Mark said that the public outrage about this case basically meant that the deck was stacked against his client. Why? He couldn't get a fair trial because everybody was so mad. I feel more like... No, the thing your client did kept him... Yeah, yeah it's like terrible. Yeah. No! Fuck right off. Yeah. That's like your guy being like, I did something terrible and now people want to punish me for it. People are being so mean. So don't call Marty Finkel my guy. My guy. (laughs) (laughs) So Andrew went to prison. And pretty soon he went to trial for his other convictions. But I ask you, are we done here? No, what happened with the $140,000? Do we find out about that at all? Oh, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Hopefully it went to some good cause. That's why I want to know who gets $140,000. I'm sure, I think at one point she might have hired a private investigator. I don't know, though. Okay. But I hope it just went to an animal shelter somewhere. me too. Lots of dogs ate. Off of it. I hope so. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, are we done here? No, certainly there's more. In February of 2003, Andrew was still in prison and he was not loving it. It's my stomach. How many episodes? It's the ones where I go last. I know. And my stomach is it's just... Why haven't you fed me in nachos? Nachos. Cheese dip. Well, that's the problem is that we talked about the nachos before we recorded. We shouldn't have we done that. We can't do that. Okay. Well, we should stop and explain. Yeah. Like, 
a day and a half ago when yeah. we were together, you were like, I can, we were trying to figure out where to go to dinner and you were like, I can do anything except spicy food. Yeah. So I woke up this morning craving some chose. <laughs> And I was like, nope, put that out of your head. There's no way Brandy's going to be able to do that. And then you came and bestowed the gift on me. Yeah, that my blisters are healed enough that I can eat nachos. So anyway, I've just been thinking about nachos this entire time. Yeah. Okay, anyway. So Andrew's in prison, not loving it. He has no nachos. He has no nachos. <laughs> and you know what I bet he had? Hmm. If anything, he had those disgusting nachos where it's just like chips on a cookie sheet, shredded cheese. Oh, yeah. And the, no, no, those are not nachos. No, it has to be the melty, goopy. Yes. Yeah. You need yeah. cheese dip on them. Yes. Yeah. People these days. Get out of here with your shredded cheese nonsense. Yeah. OK. Do you remember hmm. when we first started the podcast? Hmm. We we're like, let's try a different <gasps> nacho place. Yes. We went to a different nacho place. I was so mad. We got nachos. Shredded cheese nachos, no cheese dip. We have not been back. Obviously, we've not been back. Yeah. That makes me so mad when they do the shredded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Here I was getting getting like, people who are caring too much about this case. So angry about shredded cheese right now. Anyone who puts shredded cheese on their nachos, minimum three years in prison. <laughs> You know they're going to try to kill somebody one day. (laughs) So Andrew knew exactly who to blame for his predicament. Sarah McBurnett. And the media. Is he going to sue her? So he said to himself, let's go to court. Holy shit. Yes. What the fuck? This is outrageous. This is so crazy. (laughs) He sued Sarah and the San Jose Mercury News. For mental anguish. He wanted more than $1 million in damages. Your head is tilting so hard right now. Can you describe what's happening in your brain? I just don't even understand that. (laughs) He also wanted the county to waive all of his court fees and legal costs. Mm -hmm. He decided, are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. To represent himself of in court. Of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. Because no lawyer would bring this, oh yeah, hmm. Mm. You murdered a woman's dog and mm-hmm. now you want to sue her yes. for mental yeah. anguish? Uh-huh. Great. I'm happy yes. to take this case. In his lawsuit, he claimed that when Sarah bumped her car against his, he suffered injuries to his spine and neck, and that she tried to hide the damage to her own car. He accused the San Jose Mercury News of knowingly and maliciously printing libel about him. He said that the newspaper had caused him humiliation and embarrassment, also fright and shock. Also fright and shock. And mortification. Oh. Not to mention lost wages. Mm. Who's an out-of-work phone repairman. Yeah. Yeah, so give me a fucking break, right? I will pay you your salary. You were of zero in jail. Dollars. You were in jail when they found yeah. you. What money were you losing there? Sarah was pissed. Mm-hmm. When reporters asked her for a comment, she called Andrew a pathological liar. This was widely considered to be like the definition of a frivolous yeah. lawsuit. Um, 
which is uh, the irony that we just did that McDonald's hot coffee case mm-hmm. where everyone's like, this is frivolous. Yeah. No, this, this is, is frivolous. frivolous. I believe it was thrown out. I wasn't able to find anything more on it. But I mean, come on. Oh that had to have been thrown out. Gosh. But I ask you, Brandy, are we done here? Obviously not. <laughs> what happens now? You know something? Andrew really never should have gone to prison in the first place. He was for sure innocent. Uh-huh. So he appealed. He claimed that there hadn't been enough evidence against him, and he claimed that his actions hadn't killed Leo. It was the cars? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So Leo, here here is this argument. This this is infuriating. Leo killed himself when he ran back and forth on a dangerous road. Yeah. You guys, Brandy's exploding right now. It's a slow burn. What the fuck? Can you imagine being Sarah and hearing that? No. Oh, no, your dog killed himself? No. Fuck your stomach. I know, my stomach. (laughs) I'm trying to do a serious case here, and my stomach is like... (laughs) Oh, my... Leo killed himself. Yep, that's the argument. Also, the district court diminished Andrew's credibility when they admitted evidence that he'd beaten a dog to death in 1995. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, I was curious when I saw that because what I read in the newspaper articles was like that testimony wasn't allowed. I mean, it was like allowed, but only if the defense had brought up. So I don't know if maybe some of that got in there or what. But anyway, Andrew had an issue with that Mm -hmm. and his previous record of being shitty. Mm Mm-hmm. But the appellate court was like, dude, shut up. They upheld his conviction. And that's the story of a horrifying case of road rage. That was terrible. I knew you'd hate that one. I know. I'm sorry. You know what, Kristen? I picked. I read a case this week, and I was I like, know. "Kristen will love this. I'm going to cover this." And, and I you read a case, it. and you said, "Brandy will hate this. I must cover it." Okay, let me tell you something. <laughs> Norman was the one who came up with this case. I was like, I was like, "Oh crap! I need to find a case," and he found it for me. So blame Norman. I'll never forgive you, Norman. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, sorry about that one. That was a rough one. <sighs> Here's something interesting mm-hmm. that um, I don't know if she wants me to say this on the podcast, so I'll email her back mm-hmm. and see if she's okay with me saying this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously if it makes it in, she's fine. Yeah. So Cassie emailed us, and she's emailed us before. Mm-hmm. She uh, lives in Oklahoma, and she listened to the lottery scam episode, mm-hmm. you know, where, like, he was at Quick Trip. We talked mm-hmm. about Quick Trip a lot. Here's what she wrote. I used to work at Quick Trip. They really are the best. And you mentioned you like them because they say, see you tomorrow. You were also surprised about the audio recording. Well, they are connected. Ooh. Yeah, get this. I love this email because I was like, ah, I feel like I got the inside scoop. At QT, they sent in secret shoppers. You had to, one, have your shirt tucked in and be wearing a belt. Two, greet people when they walked in the door. And three, Tell them some sort of version of see you next time. Mm -hmm. You got $50 for a perfect shop, and they actually did them a lot. I would get three to four shops a month, and I only worked there 20 hours a week. Wow. 
At the registers, they record everything so they can verify shoppers. So now you know. They're actually, so they actually pay their employees really well. Yes. Yes. I I love that. They train them them really well. They pay them really well. They're always so good there. Yes. And it shows. Yeah. Imagine that paying people a living wage. Weird. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. That is inside scoop. Thank you, Cassie. Yeah. It's really, really cool. I'm thinking about adding this other part. I don't know if she wants me to add this other part. I'm going to add this and we'll see if she doesn't want it. Um, she goes, oh, and I found this out mostly because some crazy old lady accused me of the terrible offense of calling her dude. <laughs> I was like, I didn't call her dude at all. Pulled up the audio from that register and there was a group of little league boys in front of her and one of them said dude. So we solved that mystery. Uh-huh. Oh, and since I have short hair, the lady kept calling me it and that thing, which <gasps> is pretty much... A million times worse than the calling dude? someone dude. Yes. No kidding. What the hell? Oh my gosh. So that lady's Fuck a that monster. Lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Holy shit. I wrote back, Holy shit, that woman is a certified asshole. <laughs> yes. In fact. But anyway, I I I hope she's okay with that. Yeah. Oh, wow. In my email back, I told her I'd include this in my show notes for next week's episode. And that was a long time ago. So well, included now. Included now. Uh, yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's great. Is she the one that uh, informed us how to pronounce Miami? Yeah. OK. Yeah, I yes. think so. Hang on. <laughs> yep. She sure did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cassie's been very good to us. Thank you, Cassie. Please yeah. keep it coming. <laughs> we love it. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I've got some pretty devastating news, Kristen. What's that? We're still not at 2,000 ratings. What? What? I thought by now, for sure, he, we'd be kidding. For surely, I, for surely we'd be there. <laughs> nope. Sad to report that we're nowhere near it. So I've decided that, um, you know, I don't know why you didn't come up with this idea earlier, but I think okay. that my idea okay. is that we should break that goal down and instead <laughs> focus up. on 250 ratings wow. and reviews. what a brilliant idea. See, it's like taking a baby step. Uh-huh. And, you know, you take enough of those little baby steps, you'll eventually be at that big goal. It makes it more manageable. Interesting. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. You I came up with that idea all by myself. <laughs> so, guys... Brand new goal coming at you. We've never mentioned <laughs> this never ever before. This before. Never. 250 ratings and reviews on itunes please help us out head on over there leave us a five star rating and review only five stars <laughs> we'll settle for nothing less than excellent i hate that i cringe at that <laughs> why <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's definitely what we want but have you ever listened to a podcast where they ask for a five star i know i hate it i hate it too. yeah it's yeah. why we've never done it before okay like we've never asked for it that way please just leave us a rating leave us a review <laughs> Like, feeling better already. <laughs> um, and then while you're at it, find us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. We're on Reddit. Find us all of those places. And then uh, be sure to join us next week. When we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, 
and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the Associated Press, the Francis... The Francis... <laughs> you know what I got distracted by? In Washington Post, I have the O capitalized. And I was Washington looking at that. Post! Post! <laughs> You've never been? No! <laughs> For this episode, I got my info from the Associated Press, the San Francisco Examiner, the San Jose Mercury News, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and CNN.com. And I got my info from an amazing article by Rachel Bell for the Crime Library, as well as articles from CBS News, the New York Times, and an episode of American Greed. Well said. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. 